also want to invite you to enter into it by your questions. A few weeks ago we talked about mercy and compassion and your questions came in. This morning I believe that you may have some questions. So you can text or email to ask at westviewchurch.ca and we will take your questions or you can stand where you are. When conflict ignites, the sparks and the flames which contribute to the blaze are words, and more specifically, name-calling. Names get called. All people involved in the conflict or the dispute on either side use names and call names. Maybe there are names that you've been called. Maybe you've called names. In the midst of a conflict, what would you like to be called? And who, by whom would you like to hear? Who would you like to hear from? Whose words matter? Most of us will not experience war personally and directly. Well, some of you have. But most of us won't have that direct personal experience. And so when we talk about conflict, we need to talk about proximity and involvement. There is big conflict, a large-scale conflict, like that of what's happening in the Middle East or what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. That's kind of conflict that I would say is kind of like that out there conflict. We still talk about it, we still have opinions and so on. And then there is something that's a little closer, this sort of a, a mid-scale type of conflict, and those are conflicts that might happen in our province, or in our city, or even in our neighborhoods. And then there is conflicts that are intimate, personal, and they involve us directly. Family, friends, work, playground. What is your response to conflict? Large scale out there, in a city, personally. Many of us, what I would say, many of us duck. We would just assume our voice. I was meeting with a pastor this last week when we talked about avoidance and even sort of, you know, the levels of avoidance and avoiding controversy, avoiding conflict. And then there's what I call the dance. You can duck, you can dance, which is you dance around it. You try and smooth things out. Then there's also this aspect of delight, where we actually delight in some regards in conflict. In some respects, our adrenaline increases, our heart rate can increase, it, 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 it kind of instigates, initiates some of our emotions, so maybe there's that. Oh, and then maybe there's this sort of, well, love. After all, that's what the Beatles said, right? Love is all you need. But what is love? Who defines love? And in the midst of conflict, platitudes 
are irritating. Traditions, rituals. And then, of course, we're also very concerned with what other people think and with what other people say. Deeply concerned about it. I will say I am too. I am. In fact, I realize that that affects even the way I play hockey. I am so concerned about my teammates and their attitude towards me that I would rather pass than take the puck up the ice when taking the puck up the ice is a better play. We're concerned about what other people say, other people think. And we're so oriented, we're so desperate for preserving ourselves in this life that it supersedes our interest and the reality of eternal life. What is the aim of Jesus' followers amidst conflict? And what we are going through is the Beatitudes, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and what I and other biblical scholars are calling the Jesus shift. There is a shift that took place when Jesus came and when he began to teach and preach. And he was speaking in this sermon that we're stepping through in Matthew 5 was one that he gave to a specific context, to a specific people at a specific time in history. And listen to me, when Jesus is speaking these words, these are words that Jesus believed. These are words that Jesus lived. And that is why he also spoke and taught them. And the context within which the crowd that is gathered around is sitting there listening and living, the religious institutions of the day were divided themselves. There were Sadducees, there were Pharisees. They had their own issues with denominational divisions. And as I mentioned before, the people in Jesus' day that were listening to him were living in an occupied land. They were being occupied by a foreign country and a foreign government that were taking up residence. And you know what's interesting to me is that it seemed like everyone that was in charge had weapons. The religious leaders had weapons. They had the Torah and they had a torrent of rules. Over 600 created rules that they were heaping on the Jewish people. Oh, and the Romans that were occupying their land had swords and spears. This is the context that Jesus is preaching into. This is the Jesus shift, and he speaks specifically to the aim. For those who would follow Jesus, what is the aim amidst conflict? And he says these words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I want to notice what happens between verse 8 that we talked about last week and verse 9. 
Last week he talked about seeing. Now here is a shift in the senses from seeing to hearing. Last week you would see God, now you're going to hear from God. This word peace, Arenas, Arenas, the Hebrew word is shalom. Then there is this word make, poeo. It's actually where we get our English word poet from. Peace poets. What is he actually saying? What's the word that makes... These two words make up this word, peacemaking. He says peacemakers, not peacekeepers, not peace lovers, but peacemakers, peace poets. This means reconcilers, people who are particularly reconciling and making harmony, creating harmony between people. These peace poets will hear God say, you are child of God. Actually, the Greek word is huios, which is sons, sons of God. And in the NRSV, they, they, they change it to the word children because that's what it means. But when the original Greek is written, it's sons of God, son of God. Who does that sound like? Whose title is Son of God? It is Jesus. Jesus is equating this with himself. In Romans uh, 5, we have this passage up there. Romans uh, 5. I'm going to read it. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10 and 11, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus is the peacemaker. He is the peacemaker. The maker of peace that matters the most is between us and God, and that is what he has done. He is called the reconciler, the one who reconciles. He alone is the peacemaker. And God our Father understood that it is possible that people could be reconciled, and that some would be reconciled, and that people have the capability to be reconciled, although not everyone will necessarily be. But when a people are peacemakers, there is this familial identification that happens when we are peacemakers, a familial identification with Jesus Christ. There is a resemblance to Christ Jesus. If you were to Google occupational surnames, you would discover how many of our surnames 
were established based on what we did. Your identification becomes enmeshed with the activity that you take up. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that the peacemakers of the world are now called, the identity is enmeshed with him as the peacemaker. So the aim of Jesus' followers amidst conflict in the first instance is to resemble Jesus Christ. And that means our aim is peace. If I were to give it a summary of two words, the aim of followers of Jesus amidst conflict, two words is to make peace. You will hear God say, you are my child. One scholar put it this way, he said, the cross is not a hurdle on the way to eternal life. The cross is not an obstacle or even the way to the kingdom. The cross is the kingdom come on earth. It is Jesus Christ and the cross. Listen, the Lamb is the lion. That is what we're understanding from the book of Revelation. That it is the lamb that is the lion. It is this sacrifice and being willing to make peace through this means that just wrecks all human structures and models and rubrics. So we as a church and individually become more like Jesus when we take action to reconcile. We become more like Jesus when we take action to reconcile. The gospel message at the heart of it, Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised, is a combination of blessing, reward, and difficulty. It's right there. It's all right there. All these words that Jesus speaks here, by the way, he says are a blessing accompanied with a reward, but they're difficult at the same time. We are at war with peace. This Jesus shift for the first 300 years in church history, they believed strongly in peacemaking. They believed that was the way of Jesus. Here is one theologian, Oregon. A couple hundred years in, we have those um, uh, words there, Winston, maybe you can put those quotes up. For we no longer take up sword against nation, nor do we learn war anymore, having become children of peace for the sake of Christ. That's Oregon. The next one. And shall the son of peace take part in the battle when it does not become him even to sue at law? And shall he apply the chain and the prison and the torture and the punishment who is not the avenger even of his own wrongs? The very carrying out of the name over from the camp of light to the camp of darkness is a violation of it. The church understood that for Jesus, that Jesus shift meant that followers of Jesus were peacemakers. But then we have what's called the Constantinian shift. 
or military might got enmeshed with secular Christianity and history took a turn. In the fourth century AD, we have this from Augustine. This is a Christian theologian. War is waged to serve the peace. He must therefore be a peacemaker even to waging war so that by your conquest you may lead those you subdue to the enjoyment of peace. This is in the 11th century AD. There were exceptions in church history. Here is an exception. You can put the next one up. Thomas Aquinas, an exception, 13th century. Clergy must never bear weapons. It's, it is unbecoming for them to shed blood. It is more fitting that they should be ready to shed their own blood for Christ so as to imitate indeed what they portray in their ministry. And that's, he's saying clergy, I am suggesting to you that it is all followers of Jesus Christ. It seems like in church history from the Constantinian shift, people were willing to kill for a cause, but were not willing to die. They lost sight of the cross. They lost sight of Jesus Christ and the cruciform way of the So we have a choice to make. You've heard me say, Regularly, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior is here. Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, he's also my Savior. Jesus is Lord means I follow him no matter what. And his ways and his commands. And you know, if we're completely being transparent here, the challenge with this is that it seems like Jesus is the Lord, and what Jesus is saying seems to contradict Old Testament writing. It has the appearance and sound of conflicting with the Old Testament writing, or at least the interpretation and the understanding of who God was and what he was saying to the people in the Old Testament era, and it seems to have the appearance of conflicting with our human interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures and passages, even whether it was early church or later church or today. But what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 5, be very clear, he is taking authority and he is relocating it to himself. Ultimately, he is saying, I am the authority. I am the word. And scripture points to me. The Son of Man is divine. He is the one that has authority. He is the one. So we have this choice to make. When Jesus was in court and on trial, in his defense in John, I think it was chapter 18, he actually says, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, my kingdom is not human constructed. And you know what one of his points of evidence was? That his kingdom was not of this world? He said, if my kingdom was of this world, what? My disciples 
would be fighting for me. In other words, a distinction that Jesus was making is that his, if the worldly kingdom, then the disciples would be involved in violence and killing and fighting in order to rescue Jesus, but that wasn't the case at all. And that was a distinction that Jesus was making, evidence that his was a very different kingdom. All right. Let me finish with this before we go to QR. What we see in Jesus and the cross is that peacemaking is active. It is not passive. Sometimes people are confusing the words passivism with pacifist. But let me ask you, when Jesus was reconciling the world to himself, was he passive? Was that passive? When he was standing in court by these yahoos and he was betrayed, what kind of strength was he exuding in order not to call down 10,000 angels that were at his beck and call? The strength required for him to be restrained in that moment, the strength required for him to go through with what he went through, to trust in God the Father so much that he would give himself up even to the point of death and death on a cross. And for that he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then my preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. But indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah and amen. That's the victory. So let me say again that peacemaking is active. It is not passive. Which puts the challenge before us. Which is what I want to talk to in a minute. But I want to pause there. For q &R. Because I recognize how quiet you all are. And I know that we don't regularly have a lot of yes and amens. But there sure weren't a lot this morning. Imagine the crowd is, is around Jesus, sitting there in an occupied, oppressed state, hearing this from him. I don't know if they were given a lot of amens and hallelujahs either. I think they had questions. Good. So a few questions coming in here for us this morning. Jesus physically cleared the temple to oppose the wrong that had taken over the temple. So how do we balance or reconcile making peace with taking a stance that may create conflict? So Jesus clearing the temple. Um, yeah, so that comes up. So, first of all, we've got to say that you're recognizing you pluck, you've plucked an exception out. Okay, You have to admit that. Thank you for the question, but you're plucking out an exception. The second thing I want to point out is that the buying and selling in the temple itself was not the issue because they needed to buy and sell things in order to make 
their tenants in order for them to do this, the, the sacrifices and so on. The issue was that they were, um, the buyers and sellers, the sellers were being dishonest and cheating and so on. And if you delve in and slow down and read what's going on there, Jesus is clearing them out. And I, from my understanding and reading, he was herding out the animals. I don't read in there that he was hitting any people. He was certainly herding out the animals. And he did clear, clear up the temple. So I, I would absolutely say that Jesus was upset, absolutely, and that he wanted to cleanse the temple. But for me, this does not... Um, contravene the idea of making peace. Because I think one of the things that I want to ask you is, what does peacemaking look like? And again, go back to that passage and read it carefully and understand the context and just challenge yourself what you're reading there. Because for us, we are conditioned to think about anger as being a loss or out of control emotion. And we, we are conditioned to think about hitting people and all of that kind of business. So we've got to be careful that we don't take that into the context. So let me just, what was the last part of the, the question? How do we balance or reconcile making peace with taking a stance that may create conflict? Right. Yeah, that's good. Because I think that's part of why I want to ask you, listen, peacemaking, what does peace look like? Don't prematurely foreclose on an idealistic view or picture of what it looks like. We actually have to ask ourselves, what does peace look like in this situation? And who is peace meant for? Is, it, does everybody, is everybody entitled to it? I think what Jesus would say is, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I think peace is meant for all. And so even in, that, in these circumstances, we need to consider what does peace look like and peace for everybody in this circumstance. I think it begins to get out. Okay, because there's more. Okay. It seems in Canada like people are becoming less and less able to disagree peacefully. Hmm. I've struggled to know how to stand for what I believe is biblical in God's way because when I have, it's created quick responses of anger and conflict. Mm -hmm. So is it better to keep quiet and keep the peace or stand for the values I believe are biblical, which may disturb the peace? Okay, good. Yes. That's good. I like it. So yes, people's ears, we have gotten, um, but one stand-up comedian said, uh, our ears have become brittle. We can't handle, like, you know, anything anymore. The internet has gotten us to, in our sort of vacuum. So to say anything, so what we need to do is learn how to disagree better. We don't have to learn how to agree. We have to learn how to disagree better. Okay. So that means our biblical understanding of things, our following Jesus, if it matters to me, then what I want to do is make sure that I hear the Lord saying, you know, Matthew, you're peacemakers. Gary, you're a peacemaker. I want to hear the Lord say that. Maybe occasionally somebody else. And then I want to hear the Lord say, you are a child of mine. That has to be a priority over what somebody else calls me. Do you see what I'm saying? 
But listen to the orientation of the language. Do we like, just avoid it in order to keep the peace? Air quotes, keep the peace. Let me tell you again, avoiding or ducking. So duck, dance, or delight, none of those has anything to do with peace. If you avoid it, you're not keeping the peace. You're just moving the disturbance down the street. Peace will be necessarily constructed, it needs to be made. So we will need to engage somehow and figure out how to do that. Do you notice with Nathan, when he was confronting David about David basically doing all kinds of nasty business and cheating and adultery and all of this, Nathan tried to figure out, well, how am I gonna do this? So a friend of mine could be basically my boss. He also could pretty handy with some military weapons. How am I gonna confront him? He figured out how we confront him, and he did. So I do believe we do need to figure out how to speak into certain circumstances. And you will hear the Lord say, you are a child of mine. And you may hear other choice words coming from somebody else. That's good. This one might not come as a surprise. How should Israel be responding to Hamas and Gaza? How do we begin to understand that. Right. That's not two minutes here on the stage. So how do we talk about that? Right? How do we talk? We're in a context as well. This is our context. There's violence in, in, in Calgary. Then there's that violence. There's, this is our context. So we can't avoid it. We can't just duck it. We need to figure out how to talk to it. And so I want to just give us this little bit. As followers of Jesus, Jesus is Lord above any political regime or any other government. I believe that the Lord wants there to be peace, and I believe that the Lord wants there to be peace for the Jewish people and for the Palestinian people. I believe he wants peace for the people. And that is separate from governments and organizations that clearly don't. They're in a closed loop of violence. Human history, a closed loop where it just keeps going around and around. Jesus has an offer. He says, followers of Jesus, I want you to talk about it. I want you to live it. I want you to believe in it. Peace. So that means the men, women, and children of any ethnicity, and regardless of where they're living, the Lord wants them to be at peace with each other and with Him. And that's what we need to pray for. This isn't a, we aren't subscribing to a, a government, we're not subscribing to a party or to a, a nation's uh, institutions. We're speaking about peace. And all these men and women and children deserve peace. I think you can piggyback off this final one as we wrap this up here. How would Jesus deal with extremism? Extremists who murder Christians across the world. Right. A lot of Christians have been extremists. In the Second World War, if the church had said no, if the church had said no, 
And as we've seen in, in church history, Christians have been involved in extremist activity. So I can't cast aspersions. What we have to decide is, is Jesus Lord? And are we going to be peacemakers? Or get caught in the current of human history that is a closed group of lights? That's really the question we have to ask. Thanks to you. Yeah, kids are coming back, youth are coming back. It's kind of like at the dinner table, we have the mom and dad start looking at each other, going, okay, 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 okay. Kids are back at the table. In my house, they started speaking a different language. When my parents didn't want me to know, or my siblings to know what was going on, they would switch to another language. And so that encouraged me to learn that language. Then they switched to another dialect, so then I started learning that dialect because I wanted to know what was going on. Let me call the music team up here. Thank you for your questions. It's, it's, it's good and healthy and necessary for us to wrestle with this and rummage around with this. I can imagine that the, the sermon is what Matthew recorded, Jesus' sermon. He didn't record all the conversation. But oh, you can better believe that the crowd was talking and buzzing. I mean, there were religious leaders there. There were Roman soldiers there, most likely business people. So you can imagine the conversations. Maybe some of them got to the disciples, and the disciples were going, yeah, this is like different. So I want to encourage you as we conclude here this morning, I want to encourage you with a couple of steps. First of all, discern the enemy. The enemy is the spiritual forces of wickedness. Discern the enemy. Start there. It isn't the person sitting across the table. They're created in the image of God. Discern the enemy. And then ask yourself, what does peace look like? Because it can look very different for different circumstances and for different people. What does peace look like? And then, friends, I want to encourage you with a couple of Jesus' words. If somebody has upset you, you're in conflict with someone, deal with it. Go and talk to them. That's Matthew 18. Go and talk to them. Be a peacemaker. If it doesn't work, get another person and the two of you go. And in humility, talk with them. Listen, forgive, and work it out. And if you know that someone has an issue or a conflict with you, that you know someone who's upset with you, then stop what you're doing. Actually, I use this phrase, stop, drop, and roll, because that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5.23. Leave your offering at the altar, leave the church, and go and reconcile with that person who you know has an issue or a conflict with you. But deal with it. Those are the bookends. In any case, make peace with the people that you are able to make peace with as far as it is up to you. And then the final thing I want to say is, if you witness or are privy to any kind of conflict. As a follower of Jesus, it is our 
Christ-like responsibility to get involved. To actually get involved. What will that look like? What will it cost? How will it work? Are all open questions. But the Lord promised the disciples and he promises us that the Holy Spirit will enable us, give us the ears to hear, the words to speak, and the power and the courage for the moment that we need. And what you will hear Jesus say is, when you are a peacemaker, you will hear him say, that looks familiar, that looks like me. And you will hear God the Father say, children, All right, church, let's stand as we declare these words.